conversation with an employer or a workforce development professional will ultimately turn to two related challenges, finding talented, well-trained employees and keeping them. This is particularly a problem with entry-level workers who often lack the connections and skills necessary to achieve meaningful and sustained employment and gain access to career pathways that lead to family-sustaining jobs. Fortunately, in cities and towns across the country, private nonprofit initiatives are working to bridge these gaps between would-be workers and employers. One of those programs, the Employer Resource Network, or ERN, is the subject of a special two-part podcast we're starting today. Last year, AEI partnered with one of the nation's leading researchers on poverty and employment, Dr. Luke Schaefer of the University of Michigan School of Social Work, to conduct a review of the ERN model. ERNs are locally based coalitions of employers that come together for the purpose of addressing the critical work related needs of entry level employees. The first episode in this two part series is a rebroadcast of an AEI event featuring Dr. Schaefer, James Vanderhals, the ERN founder and president, and Mr. Jason Hybor, the human resources manager for LAX Enterprises, which is part of the ERN serving Grand Rapids, Michigan. Hi, everyone. Good morning. Thanks for joining us today. We have what I think is going to be a really interesting hour or so ahead of us. But before we get into that discussion, I wanted to give you a bit of background on who I am, why we're here, and then who you'll be hearing from as part of this discussion of employer resource networks. My name is Brent Orell, and I'm a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where my research focuses on policies relating to workforce development poverty, and criminal justice reform. Today, we're going to be discussing something called employer resource networks, which are tools that can help better ensure connections between low-income employees and their employers. Now, I first encountered ERNs during my service as Acting Assistant Secretary for the U.S. Department of Labor's Employment and Training Administration back in 2008. And as part of my responsibilities there, I had the opportunity to visit an ERN program in Grand Rapids, Michigan, that was part of what were then called the WIRE grants, which was Workforce Innovations for Regional Economic Development. One of the reasons that I wanted to visit that particular grantee was because I had heard about this very thoughtful, community-based, employer-focused approach helping entry-level and low-income workers gain access to employment and to advance in their jobs. That had always been a major concern for me. When I started at the Labor Department, I was running something called the Center for Faith-Based and Community Initiatives, which was really focused on low-wage and people who had challenges or barriers in attaching to the workforce. So I got to know a little bit about ERN then. I was very impressed with it and the conversations that I had with not just the people who were working in the Employer Resource Network, but the employers that were connected to the ERN. And then about a year or so ago, I reconnected with one of our panelists today, James Vanderholst, and I was really happy to learn just how much progress had been made over the last 12 years in promoting this approach to other regions, locations across the country. Also at about that time, I caught up with Luke Schaefer at the University of Michigan, who had had an ongoing interest in ERNs and was acquainted with the work that was going on in Michigan. And what we agreed to was a research project looking at what the evidence can tell us about the effectiveness of employer resource networks as a strategy for low-wage and new entry workers 
And that brings us to today. Luke and one of his associates at the University of Michigan have done a very thorough job of reviewing the evidence and put together this report. And in just a minute, we're going to be turning to him to have him discuss his findings as they were developed over the last several months. So, as I said, Luke will be giving us the overview of the findings. And then we're going to turn to James Vanderholst, who's also joined us, and one of the ERN employer partners, Jason Hybor, for a conversation about report findings. And then finally, we will be going to a Q&A. So, I want to give you just a little bit of additional background on the speakers, and then we're going to turn it right over to Luke Schaefer for the report findings. Dr. Schaefer is the Herman and Amelie Cohn Professor of Social Justice and Social Policy at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. He is very well known in the poverty sphere. He's been published everywhere from the New York Times to The Economist, and his work has been supported by everyone from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to the U.S. Census Bureau. James Vanderholz took the ERN program from Michigan and turned it into one that is now operating in 14 states. He serves as president of the Michigan ERN and provides leadership support to all of the affiliates across the country. And finally, we have Jason Hybor, HR manager at Lax Enterprises in Michigan. Jason has worked in diverse fields from manufacturing to client relations to his current role in HR. I'm so glad he's going to be able to offer his unique perspective here. He has worked with the ERN program as an employer and is going to be able to give us his insights on the benefits of the ERN system. So with no further ado, Luke, I'm going to turn it over to you and you will have control of the presentation for the next 15 or 20 minutes and then we'll come back for Q&A. Thanks, Brent. I really appreciate the chance to be here with you all and to talk about a model that I'm really quite excited about. I've really enjoyed working with Brent and his team at AEI on this particular project. So I'm going to try to keep my introductory comments fairly brief so that we can get to the folks who really make this program work. But I just wanted to give a little bit of an overview of the model and some of the evidence as I see where it stands right now. I direct an initiative at the University of Michigan called Poverty Solutions. So we try to move beyond basic research on the causes and consequences of poverty to really partner with communities, employers, and policymakers to find new ways to prevent and alleviate poverty, to really try to figure out what can we do about it. So this is really in line with the type of work that we want to do. In my own research, I do both quantitative work on poverty and also qualitative work. In a project from a number of years ago, a book that I wrote, I spent a lot of time talking to very, very, very poor families in the United States, just getting to know them over a matter of months and years, really. And we were always struck when we would ask families if we came back in a year and things were going really well, right, that you'd really sort of moved up the ladder and things were better in your family, what would it look like? And strikingly to a family, they would say, I would have a job, a stable job paying at that point in time, 10 to $12 an hour. I think we had one family that mentioned $14 an hour and I would have a place of my own. And this question of saying that, work was the way that the families that we got to know saw as their path was really striking to me. And I think striking is an agenda that many people could come around. But as I think about that, I also think about the quote from Fred Keller. He's CEO of Cascade Engineering. And I think one of the initial sort of champions, right, of this type of work got really interested during the welfare reform era of trying to bring previous public assistance recipients into his company. 
he's quoted as saying, we weren't prepared to receive them and they weren't prepared to work. So what are the models, right, where we can fit these things, right? We can align to make it a good investment for companies and successful for families who both have trouble accessing jobs, but probably even more so trouble maintaining them. I think into that mix, we see ERNs. ERNs, I really think they hold promise for addressing the societal challenge of unstable labor market attachment among low-earning workers, while also increasing productivity and reducing churn among entry-level workers. Importantly to me, they're driven by employers, right? These projects, these types of partnerships can be done together with government. They can be done together with private entities, but really they have to be driven by employers. And that's what makes them work. And that's what can make them successful. Now, as a social scientist, I have to say there's no rigorous evaluation of the ERN model to date, right? Looking at all the pieces and it's challenging because of the way that these are structured to figure out how you do that. But there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the elements of the model show incredible promise and can make a difference. When we connect coaching, right, success coaching to employer-driven training, we can boost earnings and enhance mobilities. And employers working together can solve problems collectively that no single entity can do alone. So when we think about the basics of this model, looking at it, right, as an outside observer, I see it's important that these are community-based, right? They're contextualized in a community like Grand Rapids. They're employer-led, and they're a collective model where employers share the cost of employee development and training, and they're designed to really increase the job retention, improve worker productivity for entry-level and low-income employees. So in doing so, they can both help employers, help firms enhance their workforce, and also help society by increasing strong outcomes. This is a, a growing model, right? So the very first James is really, I think, the brainchild behind this, right? He started to build this starting in Michigan. And you can see it's sort of grown out throughout the Midwest and making inroads across the country. So it's a growing model. And ERN USA provides the sort of infrastructure to help sets of employers who are interested in pursuing it. So what does this look through? Let me just walk you through a logic model of ERN. So it has to start with six to 10 smaller, medium-sized businesses in a community who want to work together. And I think sometimes this probably takes a, a bit of a change of a mindset, right? These are usually firms that are in the same industry, right? They may see each other as competitors. And this is a place where they have to decide, we're going to work together on some of these issues to try to enhance our own outcomes and also outcomes for the community. They're funded through membership fees, right? So this is a, a place where it's important for employers to have some skin in the game, right? To be invested in it, to see it as something that they've invested in and are going to work towards. But it can also be supported by philanthropy and government contracts. And you can see sort of a model as, as time increases, sort of those funding mixes changes. One of the key critical pieces of it is a success coach model. So these small and medium-sized businesses would get together. And through these membership fees, they would partner to pay for a success coach. And this would be someone who both works with employees, right, and helps them sort of chart a path to success, helps them in moments of crisis, when that, that time when they, they can't get to work because their car is broken down or they're having family challenges, how do you navigate that? How do you talk to employers? The word case management might be used here, but one of the things I, as I understand the success coach model that's a bit different is it's not about, you know, helping people think about their problems or it's not therapy in any way. It's, it's really problem solving, right? We're going to get together and figure out how do we get to you to work today? 
How do we help you achieve your goals in the long run? The activities of this ERN would be collaboratively funding and developing education and training opportunities. So through this collective, right, these six to 10 small and medium-sized employers can get together and figure out what is it, what are the training, right, type of activities that our workers really would benefit from that we can work together to provide rather than having to go it alone on every single one. They can define specialized resources and supports. So one piece of the puzzle is success coaches figuring out what are those resources in the communities that I can help our employees connect to. And then also maybe there are things that we as a set of employers can offer on top of those that would help people be successful. One important distinction is the success coaching, right? So there are a lot of models that provide very low cost types of services. We have a plethora, a myriad of soft skills type trainings. And those things can be successful, but usually on their own, they have limited impact. So a goal here is to provide sort of high-touch coaching, right? How do we really provide something added for folks, both to identify sort of address those immediate crises and also help them improve their position over time? So both defining sort of a set of supports that the ERN is going to offer that's overlaid on top of helping employees access additional community-based supports and really providing sort of a type of service, right? Combining those things together with coaching in a way that can improve outcome, right? So those are the outputs. Employees attend trainings, they get more skilled, they receive job supports. And our hope are, right, our goal is that this will be good for the firm and good for society. It'll increase employee productivity, increase mobility throughout the firm. Some of the evaluations suggest it will decrease public assistance use, right? If we can help people find and maintain work, it'll reduce the amount of, of public assistance they receive. It'll decrease barriers to work and increase employee retention. So it's a set of goals, both for the companies in and of themselves and society at large. All right. Limitation. Of course, utilization of services and targeting of services. This is a big one. Do we get the services right? And I've really come to be a believer that people vote with their feet. Sometimes we have to convince people that the types of services we have to offer are what they need. But other times, if people aren't coming for the services, maybe that's a sign that at least they don't perceive them as something they need. And so I think one of the exciting things about success coach models is that we can help sort of try to address the needs that people see themselves, the things that are really on their minds. I can help you get to work when your car breaks down. And in doing so, maybe you'll be more open to some of the other things that I have to offer going on, right? I've met a need of yours, and so you're more open. Availability of surrounding community resources, right? We are limited to what's in the milieu and what we can stand on and add to, right, with our own services. But that's going to be a key piece of what's accessible overall. Business engagement, right? So this is a model. One of the exciting things about this model is it doesn't require employers, it doesn't require employers to wait for government, right, or philanthropy to really take charge. The success of ERNs is dependent on businesses wanting to, to really step up. But if businesses aren't invested in it, it's never going to be successful. And then, of course, sort of this question of balancing affordability, right, for employers, while also providing enough revenue for robust services. You get what you pay for, in essence, then if you try to do it small, sometimes the outcomes will be small. So how do we support the growth of ERNs? We can provide flexible startup grants that help sort of get the ball 
moving. We can bring ERN perspectives to the policymaking process. We can educate employers about the benefits of ERNs and foster employer buy-in and commitment. Again, government cannot be the driving force. Let me talk about those three things and then end on this very last point. So a couple of the stories that I really like about ERNs are ones where that sort of collective group, right, that businesses can come together and solve a problem that none of them could do on their own. So one example is in Saginaw, Michigan. I know a set of employers got together and saw that they were having trouble filling the the graveyard shift, the late evening shift, and talked to employees, right, maybe use their success coaches to really try to assess, why do you think it's so hard for us to fill those particular jobs? And they heard that childcare was a major barrier to that, that there weren't any childcare centers that were open during that period of time. So together, the ERN went to one of the major childcare providers in the community and said, hey, we'd like you to start a, an evening shift, right? An evening childcare shift. We can help support you in doing that and sort of get it off the ground. And that's been a success story in that community where that became available and it became much easier to fill those positions. So a set of employers, I think none of them on their own could have done that, but together it's stronger. Another example in another community was around a busing system where you had a set of people who were potentially would like the jobs at a set of ERN companies that just simply couldn't get to the jobs that were available, right? Busing systems either weren't reliable enough, didn't come at the times. And so the ERNs got together to fund a pilot bus, right? They partnered with a transit authority and piloted a bus route that then proved to be extremely popular, right? So it helped them and it also helped the community. So I think these are some of the examples. Pairing together the success coaching, right? Which is really about problem solving in the immediate and the long term with employees. And also this collective problem solving together where employers can get together and figure out what are the resources we need, whether it be training, whether it be added resources in the community to solve and make things better for everyone. Now, despite all that, I don't want to make it sound like I think ERNs are the silver bullet. The same type of thing that was reflected in Fred Keller's comment is, is still here, that this can be a challenge. It's not like retention is going to go from awful to perfect, but we know that it does hold promise that in using these types of models on ERN, we can improve outcomes over time. And, and so for that reason, I think it's just an, a very exciting thing that I think many communities across the country would benefit from. Thank you. Appreciate the overview and all the work that you and Joshua Rivera put in on this report. Before we go to our panelists, I want to just loop back on one thing that you said sort of at the beginning of your presentation and try to connect it as kind of the through line of what ERNs are about. And you, you talked about, you know, people voting with their feet. Employees vote with their feet about the kinds of things that they think they need. They don't always have a perfect understanding of their own needs, but often they do have a pretty good handle on what their biggest needs are at any particular moment. You also talked about it's critical that this agency that we're talking about also be reflected among the employers. The employers have to take on sort of a, an understanding of their needs and be willing to kind of explore new opportunities, new approaches to addressing those problems. And you talked about how your own view had evolved on this. Could you just expand on that a little bit on this 
concept of the importance of honoring agency in the within these program designs? Yeah, let me start with the people, right? So I've been in many, many conversations in the social service world where we have services and sort of the big question is like, how do we get people to come in? They must not know about it, right? So we spend a lot of time doing communications and I absolutely think communications is important. But sometimes, right, in that conversation, we never really have the conversation about is what we're offering something people want? And that seems like an important piece of the puzzle, right? Sometimes I think when services are delivered that really fill a need for people, we don't have as much trouble actually getting Somehow they find out about it. People find out about it and they come walking through the doors. So I think there's a place where the services that people think that low earning workers need, there may be a good case where we say, this is something you don't know you need, but you need. But I think one of the great things about the success coach model is it can meet the needs of people, right? I think we can build trust. We can build rapport with people if they're having trouble getting to work. They would really like to get to work, right? But their car broke down. They're having a family crisis. And that success coach helps them figure out how to do it, right? That's like, okay, now this person has added value into my life, right? Rather than trying to offer me something that I don't understand that I need to begin with. And so at least sort of pairing these services that immediately address needs as people understand them, I think maybe they'll be more open to other things. Now, the question about employers, and so that's over the years, I've I've just had that conversation a lot about like, gosh, nobody's coming in for the service. And I think that's the evolution that I meant is just thinking, well, you know, maybe they're not coming in because they don't see it as something that will benefit them. And maybe we should do a lot more of at least giving them something that they feel will benefit them before trying to sell them on the things that we think that they need. My thing with employers is that there, there's a variety of ways to do something like an ERN, right? So I think employers can say, oh, that, that kind of sounds interesting. We'll sort of dip our foot in, right? Or I'll, I'll throw a little bit of money at it. And, you know, my, my friend at the other company really wants to do it. And, you know, we'll, we'll try it. But if, if they're not really committed to it, I'm not sure that it works. I guess I'll, I'll sort of defer that question to both James and, and Jason. It just seems like, they have to say, you know, we're going to be thoughtful about this. And, and some of that thoughtfulness is trying to understand their workers, right? That's where the success coach, right, can also be an intermediary to say, no, oh, why do you think we're having trouble with our graveyard chef? Sometimes it's thoughtful about the community, right? So it's about like, what are the added resources? Sometimes it's probably thoughtful about being thoughtful about their own practices. So I've been doing a lot of work in the city of Detroit around workforce development. And We've done a number of papers on barriers to work that people have, whether it's disabilities or low education or a criminal record. Then we decided to look at the job postings in the community. And we were kind of struck to find out that I think 25% of all job postings required you to have a driver's license or auto insurance, which maybe seems reasonable on its face, but it actually turns out Detroit has the highest auto insurance rates in the entire country. The same policy that costs $1,300 nationally, $5,400 a year in Detroit. And that's just outrageous. And there's all sorts of well-intentioned policies that sort of went wrong that got us to that point. The other thing is, like, if you get caught driving without insurance in Michigan, we're very quick to take people's licenses away. We've actually suspended about 300,000 licenses. Now, 
I'm not saying in some cases, an employer might really need their worker to have auto insurance and a driver's license. But this being thoughtful, right, what I'm sort of thinking is, is maybe they could look at their jobs and say, do we really need them to have auto insurance? Do we really need them to have a driver's license? Or is there some other way that we can be successful as a company and not make those requirements because it might really improve? So it's looking at workers, it's looking at the community, and it's looking at themselves. Thanks, Luke. So first question for the our discussion, and then what the way I'd like to do this is I'm going to pose the question to an individual, one of you three, and then that person responds. And if something comes up in their response, or if there's something that you want to add into, add nuance to the answer to this question, then, or if you've got a disagreement or something like that, just go ahead and weigh in. But we'll start with James. James, and I just want to give people kind of a sense of the big picture of your involvement in ERNs. What brought you to this? How did you find your way into establishing a nonprofit in your own community and then helping others to do that same thing? What's that journey been like for you? Sure. And thanks, Brent and AEI for hosting this event today. Back in the early 2000s, when we got started, I was a VP of HR for a manufacturing company in Grand Rapids. And we had high turnover. It was a very tight labor market. We worked with our local university and we GIS mapped our workforce and found that about 80% were within a two-mile radius of the plant, which was basically walk to work or catching rides from each other. And it was the highest concentration of poverty in the county. So understanding our workforce, we went back and we looked at our employee benefits and probably 90% of our staff were entry-level or plant workers and maybe 10% were office workers. And as we looked at our employee benefit, our traditional employee benefits, nobody was using the 401k except the office people. Nobody was using tuition reimbursement. Nobody was using our employee assistance program. We had less than 1% utilization of that. And then, you know, we provided free health care for the employees. So there was no cost to that. But we did have to do some education around finding primary care physicians and things like that. So there was an educational component. But when we started talking to the employees, the things that they were dealing with were car broke down. I need my car repaired, utility shut off. We just had one last week where, you know, an employee's furnace went out and he doesn't have the funding to replace it. So it's that work-life balance issue that we thought there's got to be a better way for us to do this. And oftentimes the public sector and the nonprofit sector are driven by income eligibility. So what we wanted to do was we wanted to create a program. So we see the success coach as an employee benefit where a success coach comes on site at the company, sits down with the employee, and then we track about 30 different service categories. So we're not saying we just do financial literacy or just do you know, these two or three services. We sit down and find out what the issue is with the employee. And then the success coach is a network with all the nonprofits and public sector agencies. So they go out and they try to braid together a solution. And by doing so, by having that set up, you know, we couldn't afford a success coach by ourselves. So we had seven other companies in the group and it was kind of a fractional ownership. So we each had a share of the success coach's time to be able to, to make it cost effective. 
for us to do it. So that's kind of the beginning. You know, the problem we were trying to solve was high turnover, you know, which if you look at the cost of turnover, that doesn't show up on a spreadsheet anywhere or, or financials anywhere, you know, for the company, but it is a big cost when you consider all the time and effort and training and interviewing and loss production and stuff like that. So it was really a business solution driven rationale as to how we came up with what we did. You mentioned the the EAP, you know, the, the employee assistance program, which is sounds like the same thing, but is actually quite a different animal. In the report that I think Luke mentions that there's very low uptake on EAPs and substantially higher uptake on this, on, on the ERN approach. How did you deal or how do you deal with the issue of stigma? I know that with EAPs, if somebody goes to an EAP, that is like normally kind of a red flag. Something is really, really wrong. But that's not really what ERNs are for. Yeah, and I think employees haven't used it because it's a 1-800 number and they don't really have a relationship or know who they're talking to. You know, I think they also don't trust that HR isn't getting a list of who went to the EAP. And then that's going to be questioned as to, you know, their employment status and stuff, which HR doesn't. But, you know, that's kind of the stigma that EAPs have. And back then, EAPs were strictly dealing with more of the psychological, you know, the counseling aspect, whereas the ERNs are dealing with the physical barriers to employment, again, like housing, childcare, those types of things. So we really found a niche and, you know, we had less than 1% utilization of our EAP because it was this 1-800 number out here. But then right now, I think we're averaging about 15% utilization of the success coach as part of the ERN. Yeah. And and I'd just like to add something there on top of that. You know, you mentioned the stigma of the usage of an EAP or an ERN. And one of the things that we actually noticed when we first implemented ours, we were very cognizant of trying to keep the coach in a room there in an office, right? That was very little visibility. So people could have that privacy and use the ERN services. One day, we actually, that room that she was typically in was booked. And so she moved into a conference room that actually had windows to the outside plant. And it was unbelievable the response we got because people were asking the people that were in the room, hey, what were you there for? Well, this person was helping me do this. Oh, there's someone that can help us do that? And it just ballooned on us and you know upped our usage just tremendously. Just that visibility of, hey, there's someone here to help us through things. Because I think you, know, you touched on it in a couple different ways. A lot of times people you know, are working, right? You know, so they don't necessarily have the ability to go get that governmental resource or go visit that office, governmental office because that governmental office is only open 8 to 5 you know, or whatever it might be where the folks are working right now. And, and if they're working, they don't think they're able to get those resources. Well, that's where this coach comes into play for us a lot of times. So, yeah, so the stigma piece true. just completely blew us away that there wasn't necessarily a stigma. You know, once people understood what the, the pros could be for them. I love yeah, that example too with yeah. the, the helping, right? So that's the goal. So if, if the service is saying, hey, there's something wrong with you and you can call this number and you can get fixed, that sort of, that's one thing, and that sends a certain set of messages. If it's like, hey, here's an added person who can just help you navigate these complicated processes, right? They're not going to look down on you. They're just going to be a problem solver. That's a whole different thing. Yeah, I, I think that and we see this in a lot of different kinds of coaching models, this idea that there's somebody there as a skilled friend, 
rather than a therapist or somebody who's there to intervene and drive change in your life. It's really about, you know, someone helping you think about your challenges, what you need to fix, and then really helping the individual kind of surface those things. Because, you know, sometimes that is intuitive that we sense that there's something that we need to do, but we're not really sure what it is, much less what to do about it. And that's what coaching really does for people. And it's, it's all about building a relationship with the employee, with the employee. So Jason, I wanted to give you a chance to, to talk a little bit about your journey in this with the ERN work. This hasn't been your, your life's work, but it, the ERNs, but human resources have. How did you find your way and how did your company find your way into an employer resource network? Yeah. A couple of quick uh, stories on that. You know, it started with us with a workshop I was at where we were having the discussions about, you know, what are some of the challenges that people or employees were having and so forth. And it really rung true to me because just prior to that workshop, I had a great employee in one of my facilities and they were there, they were working hard, you know, there every day and just doing a great job. Well, all of a sudden, the gentleman was gone for three days straight with no word. What happened? You know, typically our policy would be to three-day no-call, no-show, we would terminate. But I reached out to them and tried to track him down because, like I said, he had worked for us for three, four weeks and was just doing such a great job. And what I found out was that his brakes had gone bad in his car. And that week that he had been working there with us, or the previous week, he had been walking to work and he was waiting for his check to come in so that he could get his brakes fixed and come back to work. And it just blew me away because it was something I had not experienced before. You know, it's a simple $400 break job, you know, could prevent this person. And the reason he wasn't coming to work was because the last three days, it was raining like you couldn't imagine. And he couldn't walk to work through that rain, you know, and make it. So fast forward then to that workshop and that these things just started clicking in my head. And if you look at, again, at our company, we've been around for just around 50 years. We've got a lot of long-term employees. Well, right after the great you know, recession happened here, we expanded pretty, you know, drastically. So we started bringing in all these new employees that were having challenges that we weren't used to, that we weren't equipped to help with just because we hadn't had that experience. And so through that workshop, I was introduced to James. We talked about you know, some of the challenges we were having, and that's how we came on board and started using the ERN as a resource. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.